You're listening to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M, where she breaks down the nitty gritty basics of nursing concepts. Hello and welcome to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M. Today I'm going to try and break down uh, diabetes for individuals, both uh, type 1 and type 2, but more specifically the acute complications that one would see from someone suffering from diabetes being either diabetic ketoacidosis, DKA, or hyperosmolar hyperglycemic syndrome, HHS. You might also hear it referenced as hyperosmolar hyperglycemic non-ketotic syndrome as HHNS, with the key variant being that uh, DKA has ketosis in it and HHNS has non-ketosis in it. It's built into the name. And I think in order to begin doing this, uh, we should probably establish just a very bit generic nitty gritty baseline of the different types of the diabetes. So type one diabetes is an insulin dependent diabetic condition. And it, it was once called juvenile onset, but with the way that, um, you know, the diet is and more of a sedentary lifestyle that humans are living these days, we are now starting to see it later on in life as well. So it's now no longer called juvenile onset, although depending on the textbook you're reading, you might see it that way. And in type 1 diabetes, this is when there is no insulin production naturally, or there's a near absolute insulin deficiency, basically meaning that the pancreas just doesn't make or doesn't make enough insulin for the body. And there is some belief that this is thought to be caused by autoimmune reactions, destroying the cells in the pancreas that make the insulin, which are the beta cells. And that's basically type one versus type two, which is more of an insulin resistant diabetes. And it's often been referred to as a lifestyle related diabetic condition. And if type one was once called juvenile onset, type two was actually called adult onset. But we are now starting to see more children being diagnosed with type two diabetes, given again, the sedentary lifestyle and the overall, like very processed diet that many people are consuming. So When we break those two down, you've got type 1 and type 2, type 1 being insulin dependent and type 2 being insulin resistant. The two big complications that originate from this are diabetic ketoacidosis, which is often associated with type 1, but there is increasing evidence that it can also occur in type 2 diabetes mellitus. And then you've got your hyperglycemic hyperosmolar non-ketotic syndrome, which is often associated with type 2. And one of the big things about this is when we think about the treatment and the way that I break this down, the treatment between either of these, both DKA and HHNS, are for all intents and purposes, very similar and identical with some very key differences that you should probably keep in mind as you think through this. Let me first start with DKA, the diabetic ketoacidosis, which is the life-threatening complication of type two, type one, excuse me, type one diabetes mellitus. And this develops when a severe insulin deficiency occurs with the, one of the most common precipitating factors being some sort of infection that might lead to sepsis that stresses the body and individuals who get DKA. What we know is that because it's so severe, um, death can occur in up to 10% of these cases, even when appropriate treatment is rendered because of the physiological process that the body is going through. Now, individuals who suffer from DKA, some of those main clinical manifestations that you're going to see are going to be dehydration, hyperglycemia, ketosis, 
acidosis and then the polyuria polyphagia, really fruity smelling breaths. And this is because when there's not enough insulin, there's no sugar in the cell and it stays in the plasma circulating around, which is why when we do a CBG, it's elevated. So as a result, the cells still need the energy. So we begin to burn fat as fuels, which leads to the ketones. And this happens quite quickly. This is a fast onset condition for individuals who have diabetes. As the ketones rise, the blood pH decreases and acidosis occurs. When acidosis occurs in the body, your system is very smart and it tries to compensate. And so these patients will start to develop Kuzmol respirations, which is so trying to cause a respiratory alkalosis in an attempt to correct the metabolic acidosis that is occurring from the DKA and the buildup of ketones by exhaling the carbon dioxide. The kidneys also do play a role in this. They play a role in the reabsorption and they can't reabsorb the quantity of sugar. And as a result, it starts to spill over and causes osmotic diuresis because the sugar molecule is so large that it'll actually pull the water with it, which then leads to the excretion of sodium, potassium, and chloride. So a whole host of problems sort of transpires when patients who have DKA develop this. Again, it's sudden onset. This can occur within hours to days. And because of the huge shift that's occurring, right? No insulin to open the cells to allow the sugar to go in. We end up burning ketones for fuel. So we have ketosis, which leads to an acidotic state metabolically in the body. And those Kuzmol respirations end up smelling quite fruity in nature. And that's the best, I think, descriptor that one can define it as. I think at one point in my career, I thought that this sort of breath smelled a little bit like acetone, which makes sense because there are ketones in it. These patients also will present with nausea and abdominal pain. They will be dehydrated and have electrolyte loss because... They are peeing out so much fluid because there is sugar spilling over because the sugar is in the plasma. There's too much of it. It's a really big molecule and it pulls the water with it. They will become hyperglycemic. They're likely to have weight loss. They will have dry skin, mucous membranes. They will become lethargic. And when we talk about the sugars that these particular patients are going to have, they are going, these patients with diabetic ketoacidosis, they're going to be dry and high sugars. And so we're talking about the range of about 250 to maybe 500 on a CBG. Those ketones and the Kuzmol respirations are going to develop the interesting thing is that in DKA, compared to its counterpart of HHNS, if you read some of the textbooks, they will also say that abdominal pain is present. And then, of course, you've got this acidosis metabolically, which means that the pH, when you test it, will be less than 7.35. Now, the precipitating fact is that someone might experience before they develop DKA is, again, infection is probably one of the most common precipitators of the development of this because it puts additional stress on the body. Sickness, some sort of virus or you know, stomach virus or flu, if patients skip their insulin doses, insulin in the US is incredibly expensive. And so there are patients out there who are rationing their insulin. As a result, they are not getting enough insulin to shift the sugar from the plasma to the cells for them to work. The cells are going to try to compensate by burning the ketones in order to generate the fuel that they need to work. And this can lead to a full-blown DKA episode. Now, should you think that your patient who is a diabetic or has diabetes in their history 
Let's say they come in and you are worried about the potential for the development of DKA. Again, when you test their blood sugars, it is going to be high. We expect the range, and it will depend on the textbook and your own institution. The range for DKA is roughly 250 to 500 milligrams per deciliter. You will see serum ketones. They will be positive for this. You will see that they have a high anion gap, and I'll talk about the anion gap here momentarily. Their pH is going to be low because they are in a metabolic acidotic stage, so their pH will be less than 7.35 If a normal pH is 7.35 to 7.45, and as a result, the body will try to compensate by doing deep, rapid breathing that we classify as Kuzmol respirations in an effort to blow off the additional acid of the CO2. So when you're doing that ABG, not only will they be acidotic because that pH will be low, but their pCO2, the CO2 level will also be low because they're trying to blow that acid off. Their bicarbonate is also likely, if we think metabolically, and a normal range of bicarb is 22 to 26 milliequivalents per liter. Knowing that range, it's often, you know, that bicarb is likely to be potentially down in 15 range. Their sodium, based on how that fluid is shifting and the amount of urine that they're putting out because of the sugar overfill into the urine, pulling all of that water with it, the sodium really could be low, normal, or even high. Same with the potassium. It can be normal. Um, It's likely actually to be elevated with the acidosis because when we think about that, not only can the sugar not get into the cells, but the potassium can't either. And then when you hydrate these patients, which is the first step in both DKA and HHS, we are likely to see the potassium drop. The anion gap is normally going to be likely greater than 12 milliequivalents per liter. Now, an anion gap is just a blood test that we use to check the acid-base balance of the blood, and it tells providers if the blood is too acidic or not acidic enough, and it's calculated with the use of an electrolyte panel as well when we think about everything that's acidic in the body. So oftentimes for diabetics that we are concerned about being in DKA, and again, this may vary based on institution, a lab test of an anion gap will be included because we want to see how acidic they are. So a normal anion gap should actually be less than 12 milliequivalents per liter. Anything less than 12, we don't get too terribly worried about it. Causes of anion gap acidosis do include ketoacidosis that we would see in a DKA, but of course, anion gaps can also be caused by other medical conditions like a lactic acidosis or some sort of poisoning or overdose. What we get concerned about is that when anion gaps are above 12 milliequivalents in ketoacidosis, that is because of the keto acids circulating through the body. So when, if maybe you've been in the clinical setting, if you've ever heard providers or healthcare practitioners talking about closing the anion gap in DKA, that is specific to the acidosis that they are suffering from. Now, in terms of DKA and in the interventions that I'm going to talk about from a nitty gritty perspective, I try to make this very simple. And the acronym that I like to use is HI-E, H-I-E. And what that basically stands for is hydration, insulin, and then electrolytes. Because the primary goal, regardless of if we're talking about DKA or if we're talking about HHNS or HHS, however you decide to say it, is really the primary, the primary thing we have to do is restore circulating volume to prevent hyperperfusion to all of the essential organs. 
Because these patients, when their sugars get too high, they become dehydrated. If they're dehydrated, they will have poor skin sugar, they will be tachycardic, their mucous membranes will be dry. So we treat the dehydration with a bolus of IV fluid of normal saline. The caveat to this, right? So the big first key thing is hydration. Give them fluid, give them fluid, give them fluid. The second thing is we really want to treat the hyperglycemia. And we want to, and oftentimes what we do is we treat it with insulin, especially in DKA, because we know this is a boiling point and a complication from type 1 diabetes due to the lack of insulin in the body. So we give them insulin. And if you're going to give IV insulin, only regular insulin is ever used in an IV. Let me repeat that. Only regular insulin is ever given via an IV. You can do a bolus. So in the uh, ER that I used to work in, we would start with 10 units of regular insulin and we would give it as a bolus in the treatment of DKA. From there, because we're giving the insulin, if you just think about this from like a pathophysiologic perspective, the insulin, we have just given them fluid to restore circulating volume. Great. We've done that. We've increased their circulating volume. We've now given them insulin. That insulin is opening up all of those cells to push the sugar into the cells so that they stop burning ketones. Perfect. That's great. But the caveat to this is that not only is it pushing sugar directly into the cells, but also electrolytes, which is why we then have to correct electrolyte imbalances like the potential for potassium. So initially, potassium might be elevated due to dehydration. That is very possible. But when we give IV fluids and then we give insulin, we see potassium drop. And so we need to then incorporate it while we are watching the CBGs because these patients get repeated CBGs done to monitor where their levels are. One of the things that we do is that when their blood glucose reaches around 250 to 300 milligrams per deciliter. Now, if you recall, a patient in DKA, right, could have a blood sugar up to 500. Great. They present their 480. You're going to start a large bore IV, give them some IV fluid, one or two liters. You're going to give some regular insulin IV. We're checking their blood glucose. We're checking their electrolyte panel. We see that their blood sugar is dropping and we get down to 260 milligrams per deciliter. At that time, we will then, as part of the electrolyte panel, add dextrose to the IV fluids because these patients are also on some sort of insulin drip after we've given them the initial bolus. And we do that because we don't want to drop their blood sugar super low because hypoglycemia will kill these people very, very quickly. Hyperglycemia takes much longer to kill people if it goes uncontrolled. Hypoglycemia, it doesn't take any time at all. You become hypoglycemic, it's very easy to die. Because of all of this, as nurses, like those other things that we should be doing in terms of the interventions is putting these patients on cardiac monitoring and keeping an eye on it, measuring their intake and output and what their renal function is doing, checking those CBGs, checking those electrolyte levels. Because as patients are treated for dehydration and acidosis, that sugar entering that the cell with the insulin, the potassium ends up decreasing, potassium replacement might then be required, and the potassium will fall rapidly in the first hour often of treatment. And then when blood glucose levels drop below 200, the body converts to using glucose as fuel now instead of ketones. Great. We're stopping sort of that acidotic process. So we then have to incorporate that dextrose so as not to drop them way too low. 
And the big thing with this is when we can stabilize these patients, bring them in, we're checking that anion gap, making sure that they go from an acidotic state to a non-acidotic state, a normal state where we want their pH to be between 7.35 and 7.45. We want them to stop breathing in that Kuzmol way. Then we really need to educate them and we need to teach these patients about how to monitor and prevent DKA. And maybe this is a social determinant of health where they don't even have access to the insulin and perhaps we need to be able to help them figure out or, you know, get a nurse case manager on it about how they can get access to these medications that they have to have in order to live. And then we teach them just about sick day insulin regimens where when someone gets sick, there's extra stress on the body. And if they're not eating because they have like a gastric bug, that doesn't mean that they don't use their insulin. They have to still use their insulin because their body is stressed. It's probably releasing the cortisol, which is increasing all of these demands in the systemic processes. And so we need to be better about educating uh, patients in order to prevent DKA from occurring. So in a nutshell, with DKA, which is often a complication of type 1 diabetes mellitus, there's unchecked gluconeogenesis, which leads to hyperglycemia that causes osmotic diuresis, which leads to dehydration with the sugar pulling the water into the renal system where these patients are maybe voiding six, seven liters a day. They have unchecked ketogenesis, which leads to the ketosis, and that leads to an acidotic state metabolically, leading to an anion gap metabolic acidosis. The treatment for this is high E. Give them fluid, give them insulin, monitor their electrolytes. So that's DKA. Now, if we shift and we go into the HHNS counterpart, which is the hyperosmolar hyperglycemic non-ketotic syndrome, The difference here is that in this particular state, which is frequently associated with type 2 diabetes mellitus, there is no acidosis or ketosis. Let me repeat that. It's not even in the name. There is no acidosis or ketosis. There is, yes, unchecked gluconeogenesis, which leads to hyperglycemia. And because they become hyperglycemic, you also will get the osmotic diuresis with the huge sugar molecules pulling a ton of water over and these patients will void it out. The difference is that the hyperglycemia that patients suffer from with HHNS is significantly more than what patients are suffering in DKA. And as a result, with that osmotic diuresis and such high levels of sugar in the plasma that cannot get into the cells, we will see dehydration where these patients are voiding up to 10 liters of urine a day. That is extreme. So when you compare the two, DKA versus HHNS, DKA is an, a metabolic acidosis where there's a lot of complications associated with this. Yes, they have a high sugar. Yes, they've got ketones. Yes, they're acidotic. In the counterpart of HHNS, extreme hyperglycemia occurring without ketosis or acidosis. And as a result of the extreme hyperglycemia, these patients will then also suffer from extreme dehydration, extreme dehydration. This occurs most often in type 2 diabetes, but it has been seen. I can't say that it hasn't been seen in type 1, but more often than not, especially if you're thinking about nursing school and exams, HHNS is associated with type 2 diabetes mellitus. And the main difference between these two, HHNS and DKA, is that ketosis and acidosis 
occur in DKA and it does not occur in HHNS because in the hyperglycemic hyperosmolar non-ketotic syndrome, Welcome to Fuller Butts, a behind-the-scenes plastic surgery podcast. Yes, you heard that right. Join your co-hosts, Dr. Sam Fuller and Dr. Dan Butts, board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeons on an exclusive full-access pass into the world of plastic surgery. Combining their expertise and training, Drs. Fuller and Butts will share medical insights, detailed explanations, and lighthearted humor to keep you entertained and informed. We're certain you'll become passionate about the plastic surgery specialty and between debunking myths, uncovering truths, or just making you laugh out loud at their perspective on this creative and artistic field. We've got something for everyone. When we think about that and it's an insulin resistance, there's actually enough insulin present in the system to prevent the breakdown of fats for energy, which prevents ketosis from occurring. But because they have less insulin to put the sugar into the cells, right? They still have insulin, but not not a sufficient quantity. But because they've got the less insulin to drop the sugar from the plasma into the cells, HHNS takes much slower to occur. It is a slower onset. We often see it in older aged patients. And that's, I think, predominantly because type 2 diabetes is often seen Again, this is changing in the society we currently live in, but historically type 2 diabetes was predominantly seen in older adults, okay? The dehydration that occurs in HHNS is being caused by the hyperosmolality of the sugar, and this causes that water to be pulled out of the cells, they shrivel up, and moves electrolytes and glucose out from the cells and into the plasma, So how do these patients present? In contrast to DKA, HHNS is a gradual onset, and we're talking days, maybe even weeks. And when you look at these patients physically, as you go to assess them and how they present, yes, they're going to have dehydration, but they're going to have dehydration that is significantly worse than DKA because of the heavy-duty hyperglycemia that they're suffering from. And we're talking about sugars over 600. Now, this is just a generic framework. Can someone with DKA have a sugar higher than 600? Of course. Of course. Can someone with HHNS have sugars in the 500s? Yes, of course. It is not black and white in many cases, but these are some key hallmark differences. HHNS, we have significant dehydration because of the heavy-duty hyperglycemia that they are suffering from, which means they also have weight loss. They also have dry skin. They're also likely lethargic. They're going to have electrolyte loss because they are voiding up to 10 liters a day. And because of this huge fluid deficit that they're suffering from, they may even also have like an altered central nervous system with neurologic symptoms because they are not perfusing well. So HHNS has the highest sugars, oftentimes at least over 600 before the patients are symptomatically ill enough to present to like your local emergency department. They have that higher fluid loss due to the extreme dehydration. They will have head changes or neurological manifestations, those changes because of the high sugar and the extreme dehydration. 
the caveat, right? I said in DKA that in some textbooks, what you'll see is that these patients also suffer from abdominal pain. Well, in HHNS, they don't have that same abdominal pain. There are no ketones. And as a result, they are not acidotic. And because they are not acidotic, they do not have Kussmaul respirations blowing off CO2 to try to compensate for a metabolic acidosis. Slower onset, they have a, more often than not a stable potassium. And again, the precipitating factors for these patients are going to be things like infection and illness. It is very similar to the DKA counterpart. Now, if you have a patient, for example, that you're taking care of who's got type 2 diabetes and you are looking at their labs, yes, we're going to see heavy duty hyperglycemia greater than 600, but they are not going to have any serum ketones because they're, they have enough insulin to prevent this from occurring. They are also not going to have an anion gap because they are not acidotic. And the anion gap is a blood test that we use to determine the acid-base balance of the blood. So again, when we think about the treatment for a patient who might be presenting with HHNS, the treatment is exactly the same as DKA because they're both diabetic emergencies and we approach it from the same way. It's high E, hydration, insulin, and electrolytes. So you have to start in HHNS. It is critical that you start with rehydration and fluid replacement with like normal saline in order to prevent the hypoperfusion of essential organs like your brain. This is critical because some patients will have been voiding up to 10 liters a day. So you must replace their fluid volume status. And then we often will give insulin and we can start with a bolus and transition them to a drip while we are checking their blood glucose frequently. We do that because once we know that their sugar drops into the 250 or 300 milligram per deciliter range, we then need to start incorporating dextrose into the IV fluid and correct those electrolyte imbalances like the potassium that these patients might suffer from. Now, the caveat to this or some special considerations that you should keep in mind is that when we talk about HHNS and fluid replacement therapy, if you're dealing with like the older adult, this should be done very carefully due to the potential for heart failure. If they've got heart failure and we load them up with fluid, not only are we going to uh, stress out the heart, but we will cause other problems. Rehydration alone may decrease glucose levels. So monitoring these patients is critical because they have peed out so much of their overall total volume that we need to give them back that circulating volume while we are checking their capillary blood glucose or CBGs continuously. Sometimes it's every 15 minutes. Sometimes it's every half hour. Sometimes it's every hour, but you need to be cognizant and be on it because we don't want it to drop too low and we need to be monitoring their electrolyte levels in their lab work. So basically, when you think about the comparison of diabetic ketoacidosis versus hyperglycemic, hyperosmolar, non-ketotic syndrome, the patient population for DKA is often type 1 diabetes. It can be young, it can be newly diagnosed patients. We will see ketones and acid. <laughs> it's in the name, ketoacidosis. Okay, the CBG levels are likely to be hyperglycemic, upwards of 500 milligrams per deciliter. 
It's, it's likely to occur suddenly. The causes is likely the result of not enough, no, no insulin present, and it can be precipitated by illness, infection, skipping food, not knowing that you have diabetes and then suddenly getting it. And they will present with hyperglycemia, ketosis, acidosis, those Kuzmol breathing. We treat those with DKA with hydration, insulin, and electrolytes, and we have to hydrate them versus their HHNS counterpart, which is mainly seen in type 2 diabetes. These patients don't have any ketones. They do not have acidosis, but they do have heavy-duty hyperglycemia, which is often greater than 600 milligrams per deciliter with that high osmolality. And this often takes a slow onset, days to weeks to develop. And it's where the cells are not receptive to the insulin, but there's just enough insulin in the system to prevent ketosis from occurring. Again, this is something that can be precipitated by infection and illness. With that extreme hyperglycemia, there is extreme voiding that is also occurring. So it is critical in HHNS that the treatment is still basically the same. It's hydration, insulin, and electrolytes, but hydration is critical in these patients. Hydration is critical because you have to replace that circulating volume and then look at the insulin, look at the electrolyte replacements, and you are more likely to see mental status changes in HHNS due to that severe dehydration than you will in DKA. Whereas in DKA, you will see that Kuzmol breathing, which is that deep, heavy breathing, blowing off the CO2, trying to compensate for the metabolic acidosis that is occurring, and they have the abdominal pain. HHNS, no abdominal pain, no ketosis, no acidosis. That's not to say you can't have a patient with some of these things, but this is just the nitty gritty basics of both DKA and HHNS. And so basically, in summary, both DKA and HHNS are life-threatening diabetic emergencies, and the management from a nursing perspective requires attention to those precipitating events, fluid electrolyte management, insulin therapy, monitoring them, and trying to prevent complications from whichever one they are suffering from, then ultimately giving them education and working through their discharge planning with the aim at preventing this from reoccurring. If you like what you've heard today's podcast, feel free to like it. Whatever platform you're in, feel free to send me an email. It's listed in the podcast description. Otherwise, go forth and keep on learning.